So greetings. I'm Winifred Sullivan, chair of the IU Department of Religious Studies. Welcome to Profiles from WFIU. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and writers, and get to know the person behind the persona. So our guest today is scholar Linda Woodhead. Professor Woodhead teaches sociology of religion at Lancaster University in the U.K., She's a well-known author of books for both scholarly and general audiences about religion in modern societies, including the very successful Christianity, a very short introduction, which we may talk about a little later. And she's just completed a remarkable five-year, 12 million pound study of religion and society in Britain, funded by the British government. Professor Woodhead's visit is jointly sponsored by the Center for the Study of Global Change and the School of Global and International Studies at IU in conjunction with the British Council. So, Linda, thank you for being here today. And let me first welcome you to Bloomington and to Indiana University. We're delighted that you're here. Thank you. It's my pleasure. So, we in Bloomington are very proud of the beauty and charm of our city. Is this your first visit to Indiana? I've been just once or twice before down south, down to Evansville, but never to Bloomington. So when was that, and what brought you to Evansville before we get to Bloomington? Oh, I was um, looking at a Bible college that's located down there in Evansville. Ah, that's really interesting. Uh, So Indiana's a big state. I think that's sometimes surprising to people from outside the U.S., and it's very diverse. So, as I mentioned in the introduction, you are just finishing up a big project this year, a multi-year group research project to study religion in the UK today. And I was at Cambridge last fall to hear some of the findings and was very impressed. So I hope you'll tell us a little bit about that project. But before we get to that, can you help us Americans understand the difference between referring to your country as the UK, Great Britain, or England? I think that's very confusing. It's really confusing. Everything about my country is confusing. (laughs) Uh, It's to do with the fact that it's not really one nation. It's several nations. So it's it's Britain and Wales and Scotland and a part of Ireland, Northern Ireland. So United Kingdom refers to the kingdom that joined them all together historically. That's the most inclusive term. If you talk about Great Britain, that excludes Northern Ireland. So it says on my passport, I think, Great Britain and Northern Ireland. And if you talk about Britain, people never know which you mean, but probably you mean it's a bit like an equivalent to UK, Britain. But if you talk about England, a lot of people use that to actually mean the UK. But in fact, it just means England and not Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland. My husband is Scottish, so he gets very, very cross. (laughs) When people call it England, because he, you should be calling it UK, and it's excluding, excluding the Scots and so on and so forth. Right. So it sounds a little politically risky. It's very risky. So if you say Brits, do you ever refer to yourself as a Brit? Never. Only Americans say Brits. But that's ah. fine, and it kind of covers everyone. Okay. And we just think, well, that's kind of quaint American calling us Brits. But no one feels offended because you're not excluding the Scots or the Welsh or the Irish. Okay. Well, so let's get back to your project. Uh, so tell us a little bit about this project, what, what the purpose of it is and was, I guess it's still continuing, and what, what you've learned, sort of the, the main findings. It's called the Religion and Society Programme, 
and it's very broad, as that title suggests. And it was an initiative of the British Research Councils, and they are bodies that the government funds to fund research. So they're a bit like your um, NSF or your those foundations that fund research. So they try to fund research, not just individual researchers, but where you need more money. So to do a big collaborative project or a larger scale intervention on a theme. So they're a bit more strategic. So they pick themes every few years where they think there's a need for more research. So they, found, they founded this one in 2007 because there was a feeling that religion had been very under-researched in Britain. The academy had been very secularised, really. So, you know, a subject like political science, for example, or international relations, had, had gone along happily for years and years, not looking at religion because everyone thought the religion was a spent force in the world. So when people realised it wasn't, and we still needed to know about religion to understand our world, then they thought, help, you know, let's inject some cash here and get raise the level of our knowledge in this area. And in fact, the programme commissioned scholars in the UK. It was an open call, you know, here's the money, come and get it. But you had to do larger scale projects, collaborative teams across many disciplines. Uh, but the result was that uh, we commissioned projects that cover, I mean, really everything. They cover the whole globe and many disciplines involved, many different topics and the whole of history. So I was, I was uh, in charge of overseeing this vast range of subjects. So I learned a huge amount. So that's interesting. So it wasn't really just religion and society in Britain. No, I think in the end, and it was entirely contingent on what we got, the applications we got, but in the end it's about two-thirds, I think, are focused on the UK and about a third right around the globe. I mean, they, literally, they, I think we cover most continents, somebody was doing something. Yes, so that's interesting because when I was there, one unexpected topic to me, even though I'm somebody who studies religion and thinks of it as a broad interdisciplinary topic that covers the globe and human history, was I heard presentations by some architects who were studying um, religious spaces in Britain today and new multi-faith religious spaces. I thought that was a marvelous project. That's a great project, isn't it? Uh, they, no one studied these before, I don't think. They noticed that there's a new architectural form, multi-faith spaces or prayer rooms are sometimes called. Uh, and they thought, well, let's set out to study them. And they had a team that had some architects and it had a sociologist and I think um, a historian and, you know, a variety of people. Oh, and, and a chaplain. Uh, and they started to collect, I suppose, multi-faith spaces. So everywhere they went around the world, they looked out for them and took pictures at airports, in prisons, in hospitals, in shopping malls, in schools, in all the places that you get these now. Uh, and they're, they're up to about one and a half thousand and, and still counting. They can't stop, even though the projects stop. They still keep going around the world and, and looking at those. And so they were interested in, well, what are these saying about religion today? And what architectural forms do you use if you want to have a space that's not just Christian or Muslim or Buddhist or whatever, but all of them? What forms are you going to use? And they found three main answers to that in stone. Uh, one is a completely empty space. Another is a space where you take out the symbols for each religion on the occasion you need it. So you have, you know, the Jewish symbols are on one one 
do you say cubbyhole in the States? Pigeonhole. Cubbyhole. <laughs> cubbyhole. Uh, and the Christians have another cubbyhole and the Buddhists have another one. And when they come in to use it, then they take out their particular religious paraphernalia. That was the second model. And then the third model, you have just everything everywhere. The kind of messy space where you just mix it all up. And each one leads to very different behaviours. Yes. No, I thought it was marvellous. And so will the results of that be published online or be publicly available? It's all available. If you Google religion and society, you'll find it. And we've got short one-page summaries of all the 75 projects, and they link through to the project websites. Uh, and it's got a good search facility. So if you search for multi-faith spaces, then you would come to that project. And if you go to their website, they have taken photographs of all 1,500. They've taken wonderful photographs of all these spaces. So you can see them all. Yes, because what one reason they're impressive is these are photographs taken by people who study spaces, who are architects. So they're very high-quality photographs who intended to show you about these spaces in, in, a, in the way that architects think about them as opposed to how That's right. we who experience the spaces. But, they, but most of these spaces are not architect-designed. Yes. So some, the architects are quite sniffy about the aesthetics of a lot of those spaces. <laughs> they were quite critical. And uh, uh, there are one or two that are very expensive and architect-designed, like one at the UN, for example. But uh, on the whole, I mean, some of them are very flimsy and just put up behind a toilet in lots of cases or in a kind of cheap space, not where the, where the, where the cost of the real estate is quite low. Yes. Yes. Well, that was marvelous. And so, as you say, there were 75 of these projects and we don't have time to go through them mm. all. Is there another one that's maybe your, one of your favorites or um, a project from which you learned something you didn't know at the beginning of this project? Lots, but I'll just give one example. There was one which again had a team of a whole range of different experts and they wanted to, to reconstruct a late medieval worship service. And this actually was, I mean, it was a huge project. It was very costly because they had to literally create the, the, the clothes that people would have worn and that the clergy would have worn and the church furniture and the objects and even the organ because they don't, they don't still exist. So there was a, that was a big investment, that one. And they used a church from the period that is authentic in the sense that the wall paintings had been uncovered, the medieval wall paintings. It's in Wales, this church. But also it had no pews, as it would have been. So it's this lovely, empty space. And then they filled it with the material objects from that time. So they... An organ builder built the first organ from that period that we know about. And he was able to do so because somebody had found in a, in a medieval house a door, which was actually the soundboard from the bottom of the organ. And they thought, oh, this is a strange looking, it's got all these kind of grooves and holes. And somebody said, oh, that's, a, that's an organ soundboard. So from, on the basis of that soundboard, they were able to construct a medieval organ, which sounds a bit different from ordinary organs, interestingly. But a lot of the church, the furnishings and objects were different. So, for example, in um, contemporary liturgies, you shake hands at the peace or um, have a kiss of peace in early Christianity. Well, at this period, you had what's called a pax, meaning peace, but it's uh, a painting of Jesus' face. And uh, the verger takes that round and everyone in the congregation kisses the face of Jesus. Wow. So they had to they had to they had to make all these things. They found a picture 
uh, of one of those. That it had been exist- it had existed in, in a museum in Britain, but it was bombed in the Second World War, so it didn't exist. But they so they recreated that and so on. Uh, and I was invited to one of the reconstructions where they they perform a worship service, just as it would have been uh, in about fourteen something. And it was wonderful. It was an amazing experience. I'll never forget it. And they uh, they had um, invited lots of people to take the take the parts of the audience. So there was the the Lord of the Manor and the Lady of the Manor and a nun and ordinary peasants and you know a whole range of local people playing their parts and the clergy. They had real clergy actually <laughs> celebrating the Eucharist and a choir who'd been trained to sing the music of that time. But one of the really striking things about it was it's nothing like a service as we know it, which which is congregational and in which a priest is orchestrating everyone doing everything at the same time. In this, the clergy and the choir are off in a corner, a bit like an Orthodox church with a screen around it. So you don't see or hear much of what's going on. They're doing the divine mysteries, but other people wander in and out. And they do lots of different things. So somebody might be making an offering to the statue of Mary in the corner. And a lot of people will be chatting. The, the pious ones will be kneeling and waiting for the priest to come out. And in that sense, it struck me as much more modern in that you can do your own thing. And there's much more variety going on in that, in that one space. Well, that's a, that's a good transition then. Maybe we could uh, turn to modern religion because that's one of the specialties of your research. So maybe if we use that as a bookend. So in the medieval period, religion, as you describe it, is both foreign to us or unexpected in some ways, but in other ways, it looks more familiar. And if we are now in a postmodern period or a period after modernity, and we think of modernity as the time when those services got tidied up a bit, and we're now getting back to a messier form of religion. Could you talk a little bit about religion today and how your own research has uh, found a way to describe what people are doing today religiously, particularly in Britain, but maybe then a little more beyond that? Yeah, this is my main interest, really, how religions changed in the modern period, and particularly since the late 80s. In fact, the research, lots of the projects on the program made me think that 1989 was a really key date in the transformation of religion. And some, some really important shifts have happened. Of course, they would have been underway for much, much longer, you know, since the 19th century. But, but it was almost like a, a wave broke at that time. And so I um, am continually struggling to try and articulate that and say, well, what what are the main characteristics and the main changes? And some of them you can see in terms of crises of existing forms and some in terms of new developments. So in terms of crises, I think, for example, there's a crisis of religious leadership, of traditional forms of religious leadership. So we all know, for example, that um, the Pope uh, and the Magisterium and the Catholic Church can say to Catholics, contraception, using contraception is a very grave sin, but most Catholics don't take any notice. (laughs) So leaders can say and try to control, but they don't have the control over the faithful that they once did. Uh, Also, even at local level, traditional local leaders aren't able to lead communities in the way that they once did and have that kind of level of obedience or even assume that people will come. 
And partly um, these things are to do with all those forces we call globalization, including new forms of communication and the internet and so on, which mean people can access religious symbols and sources and teachings very easily, and they can network for themselves in new ways. So they're not reliant on the local neighborhood group or leader or, or whatever. And also the national framing of religion is starting to fall away. You know, we had national churches like the Church of England in Europe, very strong national churches. Um, but now you can link transnationally across nations. You can have a global ummah for Muslims or uh, the Catholic Church can go back to being much more of a, having a global sense of itself. So organisationally things are shifting and changing as well. And in terms of some of the what this means in terms of new opportunities, it means religion becomes more, in some ways, it has more of a market logic. Yeah, people, on the one hand, can offer new goods and services quite easily, set themselves up as new kinds of leaders and teachers. On the other hand, we can all cons we, we're all consumers now. We can pick and choose much more and we can find those networks and teachings that are personally meaningful to us. So there's a lot there. Let me just uh, go back to a couple of things. Why 1989? I mean, what do you think happened then? Uh, I mean, you've described some of the shifts that are occurring in religion in the last couple of decades or 25 years. What happened in 1989 to mm. mark a change, do you think? I keep puzzling over that too because I know it, it, it was really – my realization that was an important date was based on the evidence, which was this started then, this group was founded then or in the early, early 90s or this started to fail then or so on. And then – so then I had to think, well, why? Well, Obviously, the big global event was the, was the Berlin Wall coming down, and that marked some very important shifts and created them, one of which was the end of big political ideologies, particularly of communist and socialist secular ideologies, and, and I suppose the hope that through secular political programs, societies could be completely modernized and in a way salvation would come through uh, man-made political projects. Uh, and these huge blanket ideologies, as they fell away, suddenly people realized that the old religious and ethnic identities that everyone thought had disappeared were still there. So it was like the pressure cooker came off and this huge, diverse range of identities spilled out. Plus, you had, you had a lot of new forms of migration at that time, partly because of that change. And you had... It was the year in which... Microsoft operating systems reached a critical mass. You know, you suddenly saw the beginning of that communications revolution that would link, link us all through the internet starting at that time. And I think the internet and social media have been very, very important as well. So would you call this a democratization of religion? In some ways, I would. I think that we all feel more responsibility for our own spiritual lives now. And we feel it's for us to... Uh, to forge our identities uh, and we're less likely to be born into a religious identity you know oh that's just what I am because that's what my parents and grandparents were or because uh, you know in my country people used to say do you have religion no oh well you're Church of England because you're just born into into that ethnic identity that's ceasing to be the case well so that's that might be a good point in which to begin to talk about the differences between 
your country and our country between Britain and the U.S. with respect to religion. You mentioned uh, that one of the changes in the last few decades has been the lessening in importance of the national churches, at least in the UK, should I say that, or Great Britain, and, and Northern Europe, I would say, because Southern Europe's a different story in many ways. So maybe it would help, and again, to translate for an American audience to just, can you talk a little bit about what the Church of England is? Um, because in many ways, the U.S. defines, U.S. religion and uh, defines itself against the Church of England. The story that Americans learn about religion in the U.S. is that the Puritans came to get away from an established church that was established by that wicked man, Henry VIII, and that what we have in the U.S. then is something called free religion or disestablished religion. Do we have that story right? What is the Church of England and how is it established? Okay. The Church of England is... I mean, you don't have national churches in the USA. That's why it's so hard to understand. Uh, in Europe, we do. So in Europe, the nation state was a religio-political creation, whether you're talking about Scandinavian nations or Britain or wherever. Um, and even the Catholic nations, of course, the Catholic Church is not a national church. It's, it's transnational. But from the Reformation onwards... It, it took very national forms. So you have, at the beginning in the early modern era, you've got a, a Europe that's full of you know, diversity of language and culture and local tradition and whatever, and you have these nation-state projects where the new political rulers try and impose unity on a bounded territory. So that's a, kind, that's a completely new thing, uh, and that's a difficult thing to do. <laughs> and part of the way you do it is through creating a national religion to impose that unity through through a common language of the Bible. It's translated into a single language and through a, you know, a, a liturgy and giving you a sense of your identity as English or Danish or Scottish or whatever it might be. So in Britain, going back to our opening conversation, you have the Church of England, you have a Church of Scotland. Much later, actually, you have... Uh, Wales is a bit different, but you have chapels in Wales giving a particular identity there. And the Church of England is first created, of course, by Henry VIII um, to give a unity to his new national project and to break away from the Catholic Church. But really to understand it, you have to remember that there's a civil war quite soon after, uh, at the beginning of the 17th century, and that that civil war is... It's both about politics, about whether we have a parliament or a monarch, but it's also absolutely tied up with what kind of religion we're going to have. And you have all sorts of different Protestant groups and Puritans and Presbyterians and Episcopalians uh, all, all slugging it out. Uh, and, of course, it's a trauma, just like the Civil War in this country was a trauma. And when it's resolved and you get the reestablishment of a monarchy, it goes together with the reestablishment of a national church. So the Church of England, in its origins, tries to hold together every shade of religious opinion. So to try and hold together the country, we say, well, let's create the Church of England that is incredibly broad so everyone can belong to it and there won't be any fighting anymore. So the Church of England is this weird thing that tries to hold together every shade of opinion from Catholic to extreme Protestant and never really succeeds because it's impossible. <laughs> 
So we're going to take a, a short break right now and listen to a piece of music that Professor Woodhead chose, um, Van Morrison's In the Garden. Why did you pick this piece? Because I like it, the first reason, uh, because I was also thinking about music that has a religious and spiritual significance for me. And Van Morrison's uh, uh, an amazing artist who combines uh, Northern Irish uh, Protestantism and Jehovah's Witness and kind of alternative spiritualities. And I think that the quotation, no guru, no method, no teacher, is from Krishnamurti, a radical Hindu teacher. And uh, it expresses quite well that, that shift I was talking about away from traditional authorities to finding the divine in yourself. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. We are talking to Linda Woodhead, professor of the sociology of religion from Lancaster University in the UK. And we've been talking just before the break about the Church of England, and I had asked Professor Woodhead what the difference is between the major differences between American religion and British religion and how maybe uh, we don't understand each other's religion and why. So I think, of course, there's truth in the view that British religion, lots of European state churches are very anti-American, if you like, because they're established, because they're saying, look, this is the religion that you're born into. It's not a matter of free choice. So the contrast is often set up. Well, here in the States, we have religious freedom, whereas you have these oppressive institutions that you have no choice about. Uh, Of course, in reality, things are a bit more complex and grey rather than black and white, because the Church of England, yes, it was set up to be a uniform church, but it didn't work. (laughs) It never worked. So there were always lots of other different kinds of Christian and Jewish people and Catholics. There was a very brief period where people tried to impose uniformity and there was persecution, but it was over very quickly. And in fact, there's as much free choice in Britain uh, as there is in the States now about the religion that you want to belong to. You could say the Church of England still has some privileges, and it does. It still, it still has some bishops in the House of Lords, for example. But in practice, there's no penalty or disbenefit to not being an Anglican anymore. There was historically, though, it's true. 
So I guess in terms of the American Constitution and the First Amendment, which has two clauses, the free exercise clause and the no establishment clause, there would be very little difference in terms of free exercise between the U.S. and the U.K. today, effectively, in terms of the opportunities and rights that people have to uh, practice whatever religion they would like as long as they don't uh, you know, violate the criminal laws. Let's turn now to a topic which also, I think, distinguishes both the UK and Europe. And I'm also never quite sure whether to include U the UK in Europe. Uh, I assume that's also a political issue. A another difference, I think, has to do with how Muslims are being assimilated into European societies contrasted with the US. Because I know you've done some research on that and are recently finishing a book um, with some other authors about the lives of Muslims in Britain and in Europe today. Could you talk a little bit about that research and what you all learned? Yes. Um, there's a very different situation in Europe with regard to Muslims than there is in the USA. And partly the biggest difference is there, there are, there's a far, far larger Muslim population in Europe. It's, it's uh, a very significant part of the population in Britain. It's about 5% in some European countries, up to 10%. So it's, it's vastly bigger. Uh, and therefore, it's much more of a cultural challenge uh, in Europe. Uh, it's also a very different kind of population because there's been fairly free migration in Europe. Uh, so it's a Muslim population that covers all classes uh, and in some cases very poor, not very highly educated, and so has different, different values from the majority population. Again, different from the states where you only admit people of a certain level of education and wealth. And, and third difference is that because Europe has a much bigger state and big welfare states, it's much more it's much more demanding to assimilate religious minorities because you don't just say, well, here you are, come and set up your own congregations and mosques and schools and so on. The state has to provide those things. So, for example, uh, the state has to provide Muslim schools, just as it provides Christian schools and Jewish schools. And the state will also provide a great deal of welfare benefits for those people. And so that makes things more demanding and in some cases much more controversial. So that's, as I understand it, your study uh, in this book was more about the actual everyday lived religion of Muslims in Europe. Could you talk a little bit about what you mean by everyday lived religion, because I know you use that term not only about Muslims, but about other uh, religious practitioners today. But what did you and your researchers learn about everyday lived religion of Muslims that might be unexpected to American audiences, many of whom, of course, will never have encountered Muslim neighbors? They may have uh, read or seen about Muslims on TV or uh, in the magazine. But what did you all learn? Well, we, we set out to do the book because we were aware that a lot of recent scholarship about Muslims in Europe has focused on political Islam. Because of the majority population's political anxieties, you know, can, are Muslims properly democratic? Are they full participating citizens in our countries? Those sorts of questions. 
um, arising from political anxieties. Uh, and we thought, well, there's still a huge area here that's not been researched, and that's, well, how do most Muslims in Europe just live out their religious lives? Because most Muslims in Europe are not highly politicised, you know, are not involved in terrorist activities. They're just your next-door neighbour living their lives. But what difference does it make being a Muslim? And, of course, in lots of countries like Britain now, we're talking about about a third generation. Muslims have been around since um, soon after the First World War when migration first really took off. So these are people who have very deep British identities and can't remember living anywhere else and yet are not fully British or Danish or Spanish or we look, quite, we look widely across Europe. So how, how does that happen? How does that play out? I mean, in many cases, it gives people a kind of wonderful richness of possibilities to draw upon. To give one example, which looked at Somali Muslims in Finland who've come there for asylum-seeking reasons. It looked at women in healthcare. So they will use the Finnish healthcare, you know, modern scientific medical system where they find that useful but where it doesn't work for them they still rely on traditional muslim forms of healing on belief in jinns that spirit possession uh, and rituals that that bring you into better relations with the spirits that are inhabiting you and when things really don't work out then they'll go back to Somalia and um, avail themselves of the services of traditional healers there. So they have this kind of richness of health resources to draw upon that your average white Finn can only dream of. Right, right. That's very interesting. We also looked at, um, we looked at how Islam transforms itself in different European spaces. So we looked at we came to call them things like school Islam and prison Islam and you know, how, it, how it's constructed, how Muslims construct and use and operationalize their religion in, in, in different uh, contexts. And some of it was just interviewing Muslims who, like lots of Christians in Europe, don't actually go to the mosque, uh, but nevertheless have personal spiritual practices, which actually they often combine with things like Reiki or martial arts or... Uh, so partly we're just trying to normalise Islam and say, actually, this isn't a completely different thing from the other religions you find in Europe. Right, right. So did you find differences among generations? I mean, so are this third generation of Muslims that you're speaking of in Britain, are they Muslim in a different way than their grandparents? They are. So English is their, is their language. They can perhaps speak the family language, but it's not the main language they converse in. So that makes them much more international as well. Uh, and they're much more highly educated. They've been through the state systems, um, have degrees, many. They, in terms of religion, they will often draw a distinction. It's very common for young Muslims these days to say, well, my parents and grandparents have a cultural form of Islam. There's a whole lot that comes from Pakistan or Gujarat, wherever it might be that their parents and family come from. And they'd say, well, these are accretions. You know, these are unnecessary. So we're purifying it. So, so we read the Quran to find out what the true, pure message of Islam is. So they make a distinction between religion and culture. And they believe that they're finding a, a, a purer, truer version of Islam. That's very interesting. Let's talk. I think our listeners might be interested to hear a little bit about how you first got interested in religion. Um, my own experience is that people who study religion 
often have an interesting story to tell about how they came to be scholars of religion. Uh, so when did you first get interested in religion, and what, what is it about religion that fascinates you? Oh, I think I've been interested since I was a teenager, always, always been interested. I've always been interested because I think that it's a really core part of a person's identity, being religious or being secular. I mean, the, the, the meaning system, what you think really matters, the values you hold, I think are really key part of people's identities. And I'm interested in people and what motivates them. So that's partly why it fascinates me. And, and it's something that people will even die for in some situations. But when I try and think back to, well, why? You know, what a strange teenager to be interested in those things. I think it was because I had a really mixed upbringing. So I was born a typical kind of cultural Anglican um, went to Anglican schools, which are state schools in Britain. Then I went to a Catholic convent school for three years, which was very kind of hardcore, almost pre-Vatican II, heavily ritualized Catholicism. And then I went to a really secular school. But I also grew up near Glastonbury, which is a centre of alternative spirituality. So I was exposed to this incredible range of totally incompatible ways of making sense of life. And I think that probably kicked off this interest in how, you know, in one place people could have such completely different ways of thinking about the world and what mattered in it. So when, when you look at your students today, um, why, why are they studying religion? Uh, tell us a little bit. I know you've taught at Lancaster for 20 years. Over the time of that 20 years, have the students at Lancaster who are interested to take your classes, do they come for a different reason either than you did or than the students 20 years ago did? Well, I'm in a religious studies department like you have here. So students can study any religion they want and study several religions usually. There have been changes. I mean, originally when I first began, I thought two things. First of all, they came knowing a fair bit about Christianity. It was still part of the culture. Now a lot of students know nothing about Christianity. And you can say, you can tell them about the resurrection and they're just astonished. <laughs> yes. <laughs> People believe that this man rose from the dead, really? But they don't have as many preconceptions. They're much more open to Christianity. Before, a lot of them were quite hostile because it was what their parents made them do and so on. That's one difference. Another difference is in kind of fashion. When I started out, people were still really interested in studying the Eastern religions, partly, I think, because of the 60s and the counterculture and the Beatles and Maharishi and all that. Uh, now, uh, and they weren't interested in Islam. You know, now, um, Islam is one of the things that nearly everybody wants to study. The Eastern religions rather less. And you've got new fashions like um, talking about Abrahamic religions. Well, that's a completely new concept today. So that might be a good transition to talking about your book that I mentioned at the beginning, Christianity, A Very Short Introduction. Uh, which has been very successful, and it's beautifully written. But introducing the general reader or this your students who don't know anything about Christianity in, um, what is it, 168 pages, that's remarkable. Could you talk a little bit both about how you thought about condensing Christianity into such a short and why you think it's been so successful? Actually, I wrote that book in a couple of months one summer, and it sold more than all my other books put together by far. But it took years to, to do the research for it. I wrote a much longer book about Christianity before I wrote it. So I 
done a lot of reading, and that book took about 10 years, not to write, but to prepare. Uh, it took a really long time to do it. Uh, and I was teaching courses on Christianity, the whole sweep of Christian history, for about 10 years as well. So over that time, I suppose I started to distill out what I thought were the main types and the main themes. So when it actually came to writing the little book, I could do it really quickly, but it had taken an awfully long time to get to the point where I could do it quickly. Uh, and one of the ways I did it was by distinguishing three main types of Christianity, which have always been there, I think. Uh, one called church Christianity, one called biblical Christianity, and one called mystical Christianity. And I think that from the start, you know, from um, New Testament times, you, had, you have the potential of all those. And over history, you see different ones rise and fall and, and come into different combinations with each other. But they're very different understandings of what Christianity is that coexist within the same religion. Yes, I mean, that is one of the puzzles. I, I sometimes think if you look around, if you do go to church and you look around the church, you begin to feel you have less in common with the people that you're sitting next to than maybe some other people that you know in other parts of your life who are not churchgoers and have no relationship with Christianity. It's a, it's a puzzle. Um, you've mentioned at, at several points in this interview the word spirituality, which I think is a word that's hard to define and hard to use in a precise way. Why do you think this word has become so important in describing religion today? I think it's part of the great transition in religion. So it's a way of saying, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. It's a way of distancing yourself from the kind of religion that you see as old-fashioned and not where you are, and talking, but saying, well, that doesn't mean to say that I don't, I'm not interested anymore in big questions and the deeper meaning of things. Uh, and it's really a word that is more common in Christian cultures but has spread across the globe. But it was partly a way of saying, I'm not a church Christian anymore, but I find God in my own way. In some ways, it's more individualistic in that you don't want the institution to tell you how to believe. But I found through my research, it's not individualistic in the sense of selfish. Uh, it's often very focused on relationships. It's very focused on care for others on health, healing practices, mind-body-spirit practices. And increasingly, it's very focused on the planet and on the connections between the human and the non-human world, taking them more seriously. So you disagree with those sociologists who worry that those who say they're spiritual but not religious are maybe giving up on uh, that aspect of religion that involves working for the common good or taking care of others? I do. I've got a very strong argument with them because I think that they're misdescribing um, what's happening. And the people that I've interviewed and spoken to who are involved in spirituality, the opposite of selfish. They usually, um, their whole lives are focused around caring for other people, people who have physical or mental or spiritual diseases of some kind and who haven't been able to find help elsewhere, including in the churches. But there is a little bit of truth in the fact that these kinds of spirituality aren't part of a civic, national, republican kind of religion, which is what some people worry about. Yes, so and I think they also worry that without 
the churches as what are sometimes called in the U.S. mediating institutions uh, between the individual and the state that these alternative forms of spirituality won't have the sort of muscle to continue to operate in that way, that they will be a weak defense uh, between the individual and the state. I'm not sure that's true. Um, I think it is true that they don't they don't um, build forms of local community in the way that congregations do in in the states. Um, but they certainly build networks of people who are often very politically active. It's abs- then absolutely not apolitical, uh, and they campaign very strongly, uh, particularly at the moment for for ecological things. They also um, have a lot of political significance for women. They're largely run by women and for women and they take women's issues and problems and and concerns very seriously. Uh, And they creep into um, schools and hospitals and healthcare and leisure and can be very effective in pushing against a kind of bureaucratized, mechanized way of understanding human beings that takes the human out of them. So they say, well, remember that we're all spiritual beings. So that sick person in that bed is not just a body to be tended to. We've got to listen to their concerns and their feelings and so on. And we've got to humanize education. And so that's very far from apolitical. I think they're actually quite socially significant and transformative in some spheres. Well, I think that's all the time we have for today. So thank you very much, Professor Woodhead, for coming and for talking to us. And I hope you enjoy the rest of your time in Bloomington. So we're going to conclude with another musical selection, Mozart's Clarinet Concerto in A Major, uh, the second movement. Do you want to just say briefly why you chose that piece? For me, this is the most spiritual piece. It's it's almost like the face of God. It's... uh, it gives you a sense of the harmony of things, the harmony that's the heart of things. I always play it when, when things are very disharmonious and it always puts me back together again. So we've been speaking today with Professor Linda Woodhead of Lancaster University in the UK. Uh, this is Winifred Sullivan for Profiles. Thank you for listening. The program you just heard was recorded in April of 2013. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. 
Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. James Gray is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.